Hello, I'm Amber Athey, The Spectator's Washington editor, and I'm here to encourage you to subscribe to The Spectator's American edition. If you visit spectator.us forward slash subscribe, you can get our print and digital edition for just $7.99 a month. This means you get unlimited access to our amazing website and we'll send you a beautiful 80-page monthly magazine. You'll also have access to our mobile app. Subscribe now at spectator.us forward slash subscribe. You won't regret it. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America and we'll be asking if normalcy, which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics. The answer, of course, is no. I'm joined today by Michael Oslin, who is Payson J. Treat Distinguished Research Fellow in Contemporary Asia at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. And we're going to be asking if the Biden administration is tougher on China than the Trump administration was. Michael, I think it's obviously a bit early to say whether Biden is tougher on China than Trump. But we know that today the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, is meeting uh, Chinese diplomats in Alaska. And a lot of the talk around it, or a lot of the briefing around it, has been that it's going to be, it's going to be a tough conversation. And it's his early days, and they're not expecting to make great progress. This is perhaps somewhat surprising to a lot of us who believed what uh, the Trump campaign said about Biden in 2020, which was that he was going to be something of a China patsy. Uh, do you believe that the Biden administration is really standing up to China? Uh, or do you think there's a lot of hot air? Well, as you said, Freddie, it's great to be back with you. Um, it, it's early to tell. Uh, I, I think the, the consensus in America has changed uh, fundamentally and, and permanently. That doesn't mean that, uh, you know, every administration from now on is going to take a position as, uh, as strong uh, as the Trump administration did. But I, I do think that uh, I'd be very surprised if you found any American politicians uh, and, and policymakers going back to, let's say, the pre-2017 model of relations between Beijing and, and Washington. And, and this, I think, would have happened if Hillary Clinton had been elected back in, in 2016. You saw this great convergence uh, of concerns from economics on, on the left to security on the right. Trump took it the, in a particular uh, path forward. But I, I think it was it was happening regardless. And you saw, for example, uh, Senate uh, now majority leader, back then minority leader Chuck Schumer, welcome his moves on, on tariffs uh, in the trade war, which we've all forgotten about because of the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic. But there's been a trade war going on. Um, so Trump actually had a lot of bipartisan support. And Biden, uh, in the beginning, uh, was... I, I think that, you know, there's there's the questions of relations, you know, that he's had uh, with the Chinese. But I think in terms of the policy issues, um, he was expressing a, a sort of older American view that, that really saw that, uh, you know, America had all of these advantages. China still had enormous difficulties and, and challenges. And that, I think, 
was why you, you know, he would say things like um, originally saying, uh, we're going to eat their lunch. They're not competition for us. And, and the, the campaign, as it evolved, you know, began responding to uh, the change uh, in, in that zeitgeist that was going on uh, throughout the Trump years. And, and by the end of it, you know, Biden had come out saying that, uh, you know, his administration would be just as tough on China. But I think their argument is that they would do it uh, in a smarter way is I think how they would they would put it, and you know I think we should step back for a second and recognize that we're in the in the you know, quite frankly the beginnings of a shift in forty years of of policy. You know what what Trump did, and and I think what would have happened in any case is that the forty years of U.S. China relations, the model that was set up under uh, Nixon and Kissinger, followed by Carter during normalization, and then pursued by other U.S. presidents had come to an end. And there is just the beginnings, uh, what actually Henry Kissinger called the foothills. He was referring to the potential of a new U.S.-China Cold War, but the foothills of trying to figure out what new U.S. policy is. And and so I think that's where the Biden administration is. I think if you look at the collected documents of the Trump administration, they were actually very, very specific on what they wanted to do. This started with the national security strategy. It went down through the various documents, but but came out specifically in terms of an Indo-Pacific strategy uh, for the Department of Defense, uh, a U.S. strategic approach to the People's Republic of China, some declassified documents and the like. Uh, and ultimately, I think it came down to recognizing that uh, the balance of uh, relations was not in the United States' favor anymore, and that they were going to pursue reciprocity. And reciprocity did not mean complete decoupling. Reciprocity did not mean that they were going to challenge China everywhere, but instead they were going to uh, search for a level playing field, whether it was on economics, whether it was on security, whether it was on technology uh, and the like. I think that the criticisms of the Trump administration were that, first of all, that that uh, on the positive side, they had the right uh, instincts. And, and you hear a lot of people say that. Um, the criticisms were that the implementation of the strategy was haphazard uh, and would go back and forth, sometimes because of Trump's own tweetings, because of statements he would say uh, and the like. But that this, I think if you look at it from the perspective of a policymaker, this, this huge attempt to shift the direction of the ship of state, to really put it on a new course, was something that that was going to take a a lot of effort that you had to get an enormous number of people in the U.S. government on board with, people who had been used to working with China in one way, and that it was not going to be you simply flip a switch. And that's where the Biden administration is right now. They've adopted the rhetoric of the Trump administration in many ways, You saw this from Secretary of State Blinken, who's meeting with his counterpart in in Anchorage, Alaska today. But the the nitty-gritty, the specifics of policy, is something that they, too, are just starting to grapple with. And and at least in the beginning, they've kept most of the Trump uh, administration policies. Uh, They have not dropped uh, the tariffs, for example, against China. Uh, They've not decided to turn around on letting Huawei into our 5G and the like. Uh, But they have a lot more to figure out because now they've got four years at least ahead of them to say, okay, we want to hold the line, so to speak, on this this new American approach to China. The question is, how are we specifically going to do it? How much do you think this is just a a response to domestic politics? I mean, I saw a survey the other day 
I'm not sure how reliable it was because I think it was being circulated by the Russian media. But it, uh, uh, a poll the other day suggesting Americans um, now regard China as America's number one enemy. Uh, and I suspect since uh, the pandemic, that's probably truer, truer than it has been. And it certainly seems to be on foreign policy. And as much as American voters think about foreign policy a lot, they are concerned about China. And so Trump won the political argument and Biden has just had to adapt, even if he if people have, like him didn't want to. Yeah, I think that's right. If you look back at, at free trade, it's it very hard for Biden to get through his own caucus in, in Congress to suddenly say, well, you know what, we're going to drop uh, the tariffs. We're going to go back to uh, the, the, the way that it was uh, with China, either dumping goods in the United States uh, or having very low labor standards or uh, taking and stealing U.S. intellectual property rights. Now, I'm not saying that they have the policies yet, to deal with that, but it, but the rhetoric is clearly one where they're not saying, yeah, yeah, you know, Trump was completely wrong, and and we're gonna we're gonna reverse it because in fact that was coming more from the Democratic side on trade uh, than it was from the Republican side. If you look at security, uh, it was actually the Obama administration. It's a little bit like what you saw at the end of the Carter administration, at the end of the Cold War, where after Afghanistan and the Soviet invasion, they were the ones. Who began to refund the U.S. military? Uh, they were the ones who, who who recognized that detente was going to be much harder with these aggressive Soviet actions. In a little bit, in the same way, you saw the Obama administration get mugged by reality uh, with, for example, the building of islands in the in the South China Sea and the militarization of those islands, despite promises by Xi Jinping to. Barack Obama himself, that they wouldn't militarize these things. And so their rhetoric had changed fairly dramatically by the end of the administration. Uh, And some of those who are in office now under Biden had later come out and talked about the fact that they they felt they had misread China or that the hopes of integrating China uh, into this global system where it would be a, a, a supporter of the system as opposed to a competitor of the system, that those hopes were misplaced. And so they, uh, I think it, it's not just that they're hamstrung by public opinion. Uh, it's I think that they they recognize that by the end of the Obama term, uh, that the the approach had been had been failing in terms of protecting U.S. interests, and, and that something new needed to be adopted. Whether they're going to keep everything that Trump did, and and let's for example to give to give one uh, case in point, they have continued the freedom of navigation operations that Trump dramatically ramped up. Uh, these are in the South China Sea or in the Taiwan Strait. That would have been something easy that you could have dropped because it, it, they're not that, they're not particularly visible. I mean, they're they're visible when they're reported on. They're not visible and that people see it happening in real time. But they've actually continued those, and that's something that China doesn't like. So so again, you you can see that they are at least initially taking much of what the Trump administration did. Um, they've criticized the WHO uh, sham of a, an investigation into how the coronavirus uh, actually originated. They have continued certainly the rhetoric of talking about the importance of Taiwan as a partner uh, and inviting the Taiwanese uh, representative in the U.S. to the inauguration. All of these things they've done, but that's also easy because it's a little bit of inertia, right? I mean, these were things started under Trump. The big question is, do they keep it going for four years? And also, how do they articulate their own national security priorities and their own national security strategies? Well, let's talk a bit about Russia, because the sense for a long time was that a certain type of sort of Washington Democrat, foreign policy blob Democrat, if you like, would be fixated with the threat from Russia. 
all the while ignoring the much larger menace of China, uh, the much larger threat to American interests that China potentially posed. Last night, Biden called Putin a killer. Do you think that he was making that remark, thinking about the meeting with China today? Is this something that the Democrats do, that they talk about Russia instead of talking about China? Or is there, or is it, does China, does, does Biden, the Biden administration genuinely see Russia and China as similarly grave threats? It's an interesting question. I, I think in general, Americans have a, have a problem with figuring out what to do with Russia. And I think it's the, um, let's put it this way, historically, we've never faced, uh, again, an adversary that we defeated. You know, as Americans, we think it's it's done. You know, we knocked you down on the mat, you were counted out, the bout is over, we're on to the next opponent, and it's become China, uh, for very good reasons. I mean, I think, you know, for all of the harping on, you know, whether we are in a Cold War and we shouldn't adopt Cold War terminology, I think it's pretty clear that China under Xi Jinping and the, the, the Communist Party has decided they are in a Cold War with us. I think that's very clear when you look at their rhetoric, when you look at their discussion of ideology, their talk about the failures of the West, their goal of, of supplanting the United States. It's a little concerning if, if it's the fact that Americans can't you know face two fronts. So we did it pretty well in the 1940s, and that was a, an actual war and a hot war. Or if you want to use another uh, analogy, we can't talk and chew gum at the same time. But I think we find it hard somehow to sort of say, whoa, you know, we knocked Russia down. It was on the mat. It certainly should not have gotten up. Uh, And that's a little bit where we've been with Putin since I would say maybe 2008 and the invasion of Georgia, but certainly 2012, 2013 and the invasion of Ukraine, Crimea, the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of Ukraine. So uh, it's it's both sides trying to, to... to figure out how do you deal with with this adversary who, in the grand scheme of things, isn't that powerful. I mean, at, at one level, they're, they're existentially powerful because of nuclear weapons. From almost every other element of national power, they're, they're extremely weak. You know, they're extremely weak on, on certainly soft power. They're weak on economic power. They're overall weak on technology. They've tied themselves to the Chinese. You know, they just this week, right, announced they're going to put a lunar base together. Uh, and you know have a have a base on the moon i'll wait to see you know let's let's not jump and be panicked that sounds a little bit like after sputnik right when we started saying that the russians the soviets were going to be able to lob nuclear weapons a bombs down on the us from from orbiting space stations you know look you're talking about the old sputnik i thought you were talking about sputnik the vaccine there for a second no 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 the, the no the, the the real sputnik the one that mattered as opposed to their their, their vaccine. So, uh, so again, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting problem for the U.S. to, to, uh, to figure out how to deal with uh, the Russians um, when they pose certain, I would say, short-term tactical threats, but they don't really pose long-term strategic threats. And we're, what we're doing is shifting painfully and slowly our strategic perspective to figure out how we deal with a China that we hoped would be a partner and we now see is at least a rival. Look, it's beyond competitor. Competitor is sort of anodyne. We compete with a lot of people. We compete with you guys, you know, and and the Brits and in soft power in different ways, right? China's more than a competitor. It's a rival. The question is, is it an adversary? And that's what we're trying to strategically understand and determine. And so, saying that you've got a major strategic adversary, but then you've got this sort of tactical adversary nipping at your heels and kicking you in the shins, the Russians, 
is something, and, and I would say, by the way, with that, one of the reasons, Freddie, we have such a problem dealing with Russia is that we completely hollowed out our Russia expertise after the Cold War. I mean, I was one of those who started doing Russian area studies at the end of the Cold War, and then before you knew it, you had to figure out a new gig because it was over. And so we don't actually have the expertise. We haven't been uh, replenishing that expertise on Russia the way that we did, I would say, quite impressively during the Cold War, even for all of our failures to understand what they were doing. So we're really caught short. To to get to your actual question about what Biden uh, was saying, uh, I think, again, it's, it's, it's part of um, staking out the territory he wants to as president, which is to say we're not going to be backing down uh, in the face of what are clearly provocative and aggressive actions that Russia has been doing uh, around the world, you know, whether it's in, in in Britain in particular, it's been extraordinarily invasive, but it's also been invasive in the United States. Uh, it's been invasive uh, both on a digital sense, it's been invasive on the espionage sense, on the tracking down and, and elimination of Putin's enemies. It would be very difficult, I think, for any American president uh, to downplay it without certain repercussions. And, and the rap on Trump, of course, is that he rhetorically downplayed it. Uh, with his tweets and talking about Putin. But if you look at the actual policies, the Trump administration put more sanctions on Russia than any other American administration. They talked about, uh, they they revitalized the American military presence in uh, Europe after uh, several decades of it being drawn down. They uh, committed to uh, modernizing and revitalizing the American nuclear deterrent, and that was largely in the face of Russia. So there was an enormous uh, actual policy that sought to continue to put pressure on and isolate Russia, even if the rhetoric didn't follow that. Biden's rhetoric right now is is strongly anti-Russian. The question we'll have to see again, and same thing with China, is what is the policy? Isn't it quite interesting that Biden does seem to be quite hot-headed with his rhetoric in a way that people would have thought Trump would have been, but actually he really wasn't. I mean, Biden has called Z a thug. I'm not sure Trump ever said anything quite so rude about Z. He certainly would have said things that offended the Chinese, like the China virus and so on. But he was often careful to compliment Z. And then last night, of course, Biden calls Putin a killer. He said in the past that he's boasted about the fact that he said he pointed at Putin in the chest and told him he didn't have a soul. So he he seems to get puffed up on this sort of angry rhetoric in a way that's perhaps not very intelligent dipl- diplomatically. Well, it's right. It's interesting what you say about Trump. You know, he was he was criticized for being, um, you know, for loving strongmen, right, and and being, you know, uh, too accommodating and and sort of rolling over for people he thought were strongmen, be it Putin or or be it Xi. But his rhetoric, I mean, the only the initial rhetoric, uh, let's say against Kim Jong Un, was quite strong. Mm. Uh, but then it again, once he had opened up these relations with him, you know, which didn't go very far, but once he had opened up these relations, uh, you know, the rhetoric changed to, you know, uh, got great letters and, you know, he's doing great things and so on and so forth. And that that clearly was was very much Trump's view of how you interact with these people. Biden comes at it from a, a very different uh Position, I think it's one of being, you know, a lifelong politician, uh, having been through, you know, numerous administrations of dealing with with iterations of Russians and and Chinese, and there is this hardness to the rhetoric that, again, if if we want to, you know, interpret the world in Trumpian terms, these are all opening bids, right? His this is his opening bid as to how he is going to express 
his view of these guys, which again, in the in the same way that Trump was doing it, does not mean that you can't then try to figure out how to how to make a deal with them, right? Uh, and and Trump did the same thing. If you look at the early rhetoric on China, it was extremely strong. And you're right; it never got personalized in the way that Biden does it. Um, but if you think about it, Biden is a retail politician, and and everything's personal for them. For Trump, it it wasn't personalized in the sense of attacking your potential negotiating partner, but it was very much, uh, you know, he he look, he took that call with the Taiwanese president Tsai Ing-wen during the transition period, and he, he immediately began talking about, well, if if the Chinese aren't going to help us on security issues, we're not going to help them on on economic issues. All of this was setting the bar very high. If you remember back to the early days of 2017, and then immediately they moved to the negotiating and they, they had constant negotiations with the Chinese, for example, over the uh, over the trade tariffs. This took a long, this took years to put into place. I mean, ultimately it took it took two years, I think, to get those into place and they did it over a period of time and in, and in tranches, so to speak. Uh, and so everything was an opening bid that would then be renegotiated. And in a way, I think that that Biden, who's very much, a, again, a retail politician, it's, it's very much about that that personal uh, relationship, which is ultimately where Trump came down on, right? He he said, "Look, I can work with these guys." I think that's I think that's what Biden's doing, and it's not, you know, it's it's not unknown. Remember what you know Margaret Thatcher said about Gorbachev. You know, he's a man we can do business with. Mm. You know, he's got a, a you know the uh, what was it the um, the the iron grin or fangs? Whatever. I forget the the exact. Like, everyone will jump on me because I can't remember exactly what she said. But people do this a lot. And and George Bush said he had looked into Putin's soul uh, when he when he saw in his eyes. So I I don't think that what Biden's doing in some ways is particularly different from uh, other politicians. He's just chosen, and this is the different part, to be much more uh, aggressive about it. And again, whether that's to set up an initial negotiating stance, which you will then move off of, uh, you know, that's that's really that's really the question. Are you saying that the Trumpian uh, transactional approach to foreign policy has become the way that uh, Washington now operates? Great question. I think in some ways we've always been transactional, and I think it was, you know, a, a misreading of American history to say that we were never transactional. And I think it was deployed as a criticism of Trump, as someone who didn't know what he was doing, uh, as someone, uh, you know, who was this sort of brutish, uh, you know, New York property developer. And uh, we've we've always done that. Look, if we weren't transactional to some degree, we wouldn't even ask our allies for host nation support. Right. One of the big slams on Trump was that, well, you know, he's just making our alliances into transactions because he's saying if you don't pay more, we're going to pull our troops out. But we wouldn't have our troops there in the first place if the Japanese weren't paying billions of dollars and the Koreans weren't paying billions of dollars. You know, again, the rhetoric of how you express what your commitments are. And despite all of his rhetoric, Trump never pulled out of NATO. He didn't pull out of Japan. He didn't pull out of Korea. Uh, if anything, he had the closest relationship with a Japanese prime minister since the 1980s uh, and ultimately committed more U.S. resources to Europe. So on the one hand, you can either say Trump was actually not transactional when he said he would be and it was just a negotiating tactic, or you can say the U.S. is always transactional. There's always a transaction uh, between what we want our allies and our partners to do, what they're willing to do, and what we're willing to settle for. I mean, we were transactional in the Gulf War, 
uh, we were transactional when Japan said uh, in the Gulf War back in 1991, we're not going to send troops, but we're basically going to underwrite the entire war. They paid, I think it was a trillion dollars. Uh, it, it, that was the ultimate in transactionalism, in, in, in my view, in the, in the post-Cold War world. Uh, and you can probably find more and more uh, examples of that. We don't even have to talk about going back to the post-World War II era. So transactionalism has always been a part of U.S. foreign policy, just as idealism has. And uh, the same point, uh, you know, the, the slamming Trump for talking about America first was only because he used those terms. The idea that any national leader doesn't look to their own national interests first is pure fantasy. We certainly see that in Europe and we see it across the globe. We, we above all, we see it in China and Russia. Uh, and so somehow that Trump is to be was to be criticized for saying it was America first when that's when everyone does. Well, in some ways, it's certainly what Biden seems to be saying. If you're Mike Pompeo, uh, Trump's Secretary of State for, for most of Trump's term, and you know he's he's regarded as the, the sort of intelligence behind uh, Trump's approach to China. Does he now look at what the Biden administration's doing, their approach to China, and does he think we've successfully turned the ship of state around in a direction that that will stand that means America will stand up to China, or are there areas where he'll be thinking no? They're going back to the, the, if you like, more globalist approach of before. Well, I think that there's there's certainly a globalist uh, inclination uh, with the Biden administration. Now, again, you know, I think it's important to recognize that we're talking about a fairly narrow spectrum. The Trump administration, yeah, they pulled out of the WHO. Uh, they pulled out of the climate accords. Um, there were certain things, I would say, around the edges. I don't think anybody would claim that being in the WHO is the centerpiece of American strategy in the world, right? Uh, nor is it actually being on the Human Rights Council uh, or even the, the Paris Climate Change or Kyoto or, or whichever one it was. These were all things around the edges. Trump didn't pull out of NATO. He didn't pull the U.S. out of APEC. He didn't end any of our alliances. My point is not to, to justify what Trump was doing, but it but was to say that internationalism is baked into American foreign policy uh, as much as nationalism is, right? As much as protecting your own national interests. And in fact, Americans believe you can protect your own national interests through engagement in these international institutions. There are degrees to which certain presidents want to be part of it. For example, Ronald Reagan did not sign the uh, the convention on the, the law of the sea uh, and instead demanded that certain changes be made. Those changes actually were made. It was, it, they were very arcane things about you know, seabed mining and things like that. But they got to broader questions of national sovereignty. And after that, the U.S. Senate refused ever to ratify the treaty. And yet the United States, the United States Navy and others essentially follow most of the law of the sea conventions, right? So so there, there's, you know, there's the kabuki theater of what you accept and what you say you're accepting versus what you actually do. There's actually uh, trying to fulfill national goals through internationalist means. And, and there's actually a fairly narrow spectrum, I would say, on the part of, of, of all American policymakers. So to get to your question about, about Mike Pompeo, and uh, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to speak for him. He's more than capable of speaking for himself. Um, but I think that, you know, that the view in the Trump administration is not that they were that they were dramatically changing U.S.-China policy. It's that they were actually reacting to the reality that they were facing. 
it's not that they were saying, look, everything's great and we want to blow it up. It's rather that things are not going very well and there's manifest evidence for that on economics, on technology, on IPR, on espionage, on South China Sea, so on and so forth. And we're simply reacting to it. And I think when you look at the work of um, people like H.R. McMaster and Matt Pottinger, uh, the National Security Advisor and Deputy National Security Advisor, on, on crafting a lot of these statements and, and these strategies, these were these were largely shared. Uh, so, so I think that, that the policy was changing the ship of state. Um, but in, in many ways, the ship of state had already been tacking to a new course. And it was a question of, was there going to be a hand on the tiller? And, and how firmly would they guide it? And and that's what the Trump administration tried to do. And I think, and that's certainly where the Biden administration is going to be. Uh, and, and just to give one more example, the, the quadrilateral security dialogue, which uh, they just had uh, the first heads of state meeting last week with Biden, the Prime Minister of Japan, uh, Prime Minister of India, and Prime Minister of uh, Australia. Um, this was actually revitalized under Trump. Uh, it had been, more or less been in abeyance for the past 10 years, uh, and Trump uh, revitalized it in 2017 when he took office. And uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, who is with Tony Blinken today in Anchorage, Alaska, stated that this was going to be fundamental to U.S. security posture. So, so yeah, to some degree, probably Pompeo and, and, and H.R. McMaster and Matt Pottinger and others are saying, you know, we, we changed the course uh, and it's being followed. But at the same time, I think probably their view would be, no, we were just being realistic and trying to, to, you know, chart the course that was already in some ways being followed, you know, because relations between the U.S. and China had deteriorated. Uh, and it's natural that the Biden people are going to be following this, the general course that we were on. They may tack a few degrees to the, to the port or starboard and, you know, but eventually they're going to be on the same heading. Yeah. There's always more continuity than there is change in in some ways i think so yeah sorry for all the nautical terms i'm, I'm writing a book about uh, america and the sea back in the in the late 18th century so i'm, I'm, I'm thinking nautically these days well I, I i enjoyed them all very much michael it's been a great pleasure to have you on uh, please uh, do come on again to talk about this uh, vast ocean of a subject <laughs> that's great anytime freddie thanks so much Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. (laughs) 